What's up guys and welcome to the Meeple Minded Podcast, the podcast where we talk all things tabletop gaming. My name is Jason. My name's Ian. Along with Paul in the newsroom, join us as we bumble our way through the gaming industry. So pop the kettle on, grab a brew, and let's get on with today's episode. Brew at the ready, I have it here in my hands. A nice cup of tea ready to talk all things tabletop gaming today. How are you doing today, Ian? I'm good. How are you, Jason? I am not too bad, not too bad. We are back, we are recording again, that makes me very happy. What makes me not so happy is the fact that I can't see you in front of me. I'm I'm not so disappointed about that front, but hey-ho. <laughs> <laughs> but the atmosphere's not quite the same. It isn't, it isn't. It, it doesn't seem right sitting here talking to a computer screen, and this time I can't even see you, so... Yeah, it's very strange. I do feel like I'm here sitting talking to myself and that your voice is actually my computer talking back to me. I am a robot. (laughs) So what are we going to talk about today? Um, We had a discussion over the past couple of weeks since you guys last heard from us. And we figured a great discussion to have today would actually be what attracts us personally uh, to buying board games or just tabletop games in general, to be honest. So... Yeah. yeah, that's what we're going to talk about today. We've written out our own separate list of the top 10 things that we find we we are looking for when we're standing in a gaming shop or browsing online to see what uh, what really attracts us to that game. Yeah, what pulls us to those games, um, why, and it, it helped us actually as well to think, you know, what's made us pick up some of the stuff in our collections, in, you know, because it's... Weird how we can end up up with a few, you know, with a few of the bits and pieces we have around. Yeah, definitely. And I will admit, after writing this this list, I actually went and looked at some of the games in my collection, and there's quite a few things on this list that I clearly was not thinking about at the time. So it also shows me how I've progressed over time in uh, really selecting games um, that I feel would fit the collection a bit better. So that's uh, that. That's always an interesting aspect to this as well. But yeah. Anyway, without further ado, I think we'll just jump straight into it this week um, with the top ten things that we like or we look for when we're purchasing tabletop games. So just to be really confusing and standard Ian protocol, I'm going to start with number eleven of ten, which um, <laughs> typical is, Ian. Yep. Just something we thought was doesn't quite make a difference on how we pick a game but it does make a difference on some of the games we've picked up and is a whole topic in itself is the with crowdfunding in general but crowdfunding extras all yeah. of the um exclusives you get from um, the stretch goals does make a difference there have been games that i've almost bought um there was a marvel game from call mini or not that had a million and one extras that you won't get from retail but the game just didn't need the minis in the first place. So I nearly bought it just for the sake of the extras on it. Um, mm. And there are some games in our collection where I've probably done that. I mean, there's there's no way I would have spent as much on the Jurassic World game that's due um, if it hadn't come with the 50 million extra dinosaurs that we're getting from you know from our thing. I wouldn't have bought it in the shops, I don't think, for that sort of price values. No, I have to agree on that one as well. So. But again, it's with the way the world's changing with crowdfunding and stuff at the moment, it's not quite a top 10 thing, but it has to be a noteworthy mention. Yes, definitely. Definitely. So, yeah, the, the honourable mention, without a doubt, 
for us has to be um, what we look for in a Kickstarter. And, and I, I do agree with Ian. I, th- I think we could even do a separate list for that because there are definitely a load of extra things that I look for when I'm potentially backing the project, um, as well as the stuff that will appear in this list as well. So, But seeing as though you started off with number 11, I will come in with my number 10. And I will say... At- there is no particular order to these things. Um, nothing is more important than others. Um, but yeah, it's just the the way I wrote this list. So ten. Ten. my number 10 is difference from games that I already own. And I appreciate the first thing that we're all going to say is, well, hang on a minute. <laughs> Jason has multiple but games from the Rising series from the OP, you know, a USAopoly. Um so yeah, this is definitely clearly not high on my list, but this does also apply to more than things than just sequels and spin-offs. There's not really much point in having a game that is very, very similar or identical to another game that you already own. Obviously, if it's a new IP on that game, it might appeal to you um, so that you do want multiple versions of it. The main reason that I have multiple versions of the Rising series, for example, is actually because of the clubs that we operate you know, I've got the Harry Potter one, and I've also got the Thanos Rising one. Some people might like Harry Potter and not like Marvel, or they might like Marvel and not Harry Potter. And that is such a good game to play, it's worth having that extra copy so that more people will be intrigued to play it. Yep. So yeah, that's my number 10, difference from games I already own. Again, my list will be in no particular order, but I'm going to try to pick the ones that mean less to me to start with. So... The one that I'm going to say now is game length. It is a big thing, um, but it's not usually something that's the first thing I look at on a game. And again, going back to what Jason's just said, the clubs do make a difference on this because we have limited time when we're at our venues. We don't have all day for a big campaign game or something. You know, we've only got a few hours, so some of the quicker games will see the table more often. And sometimes it's just nice to chill with something quick and easy and fun. So you know, game length and I suppose number of players fits in with it is um, something that I have to be aware of um, and I'm starting to pay more attention to in my um, collection. Yep, that is a really, really good point. Very good. Um, That may well appear on my list later. Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) Nine. So number nine for me, and this is definitely not high on the list, if I'm honest, um, but it is definitely there. And that is educational content. Now... I hated being in school, you know, I, I hate learning as a rule. However, it's it doesn't have to be something like you, you are sitting in, sto- in school. As long as you learn something, it's educational. So, for example, if you take the ticket to ride games, the maps are all maps of actual places, albeit from the past. Um, so they actually help you, alert, they help you learn a little bit of geography. It's not what they're trying to do, but the fact that it does do it it makes it educational content so as minimal as it might be or as you know something like uh, i think it's the timeline games they're incredibly educational but still fun so yeah if a game can provide you with a little bit of educational content as well that is another tick on my list towards me wanting to purchase a game so yeah number nine educational content i'm going to jump in with another more physical thing and that is price I know this is ironic considering we've said we forked out between me and Jason some silly amounts of money on some games. So it's not always a deal breaker. 
but there are games out there that price has made a difference um it depends what comes in what you know what you get for the price so i suppose price plus um value come as a big thing here you know some games are forcing minis now in them just to bump prices up do they need them what does it bring to the table there are other games we own where ips have just dumped in um, extra money onto it just to pay for that um a different ironically a different jurassic park game when me and jason were talking to a friend about the other day the original jurassic world board game co-op game was an insane amount of money for literally a cardboard mat a few cardboard tokens and i think it's like two or three dice yes and it wasn't nearly worth the money that you know of what was paid for it jason was lucky he got it gifted to him but as a present but yeah the game was enjoyable but the price actually killed the enjoyment for me because yeah. if it had been like 10 15 pound game then yeah it was a good little simple um not very complicated game that we can enjoy but i think it was something silly like 45 50 pound worth of game and it just wasn't anywhere near up to scratch but there wasn't even enough artwork in the game to warrant that sort of money no um and to be honest it, it, from what you're saying yeah it would have been a great actual introductory gateway game but at that price point it's never ever going to fall into a gateway game no uh, yes very good point there Ian. Very nice. Uh, moving on. Eight. My number eight. Now, this definitely is a big one for me. Um, and I'm going to say I reckon this will appear on Ian's list at some point as well. Um, and that is number eight. Variety, expandability, and replayability. And that third one is the key one there, is replayability. There is nothing worse than purchasing a game that has no replayability for me. Um, it's one of the key reasons that I don't particularly like legacy-style games. I will play them. I will enjoy them. However, I love my games to to give me the replayability aspect. So, <clears throat> for example, Marvel Legendary, I've talked about it many, many times. It has a crazy amount of purchasable upgrades um, that add to its replayability on top of what's already in the box, but it doesn't sacrifice... Um, its rules. It always keeps the core rules. It will add in extra rules, but it never makes it convoluted or anything like that. So that's the expandability side of it. And the replayability, even in the box, that the core box has some really good combinations that you can do. No game ever feels the same. And that's what I mean by replayability. If you play a game over and over and over, and every single time it's the same game, it gets tedious, it gets boring. And you then find that you never play those games again. Um, so it really does lack the replayability aspect. And it's also something I factor in quite heavily when I'm reviewing a game as well. So yeah, number eight, variety, expandability and replayability. And I'm just going to carry on with that because it's on my list as well and expand on that. The only difference I have on what Jason's just said is I disagree on the legacy game side of things. Um some legacy games have uh, recharge packs so you can do them again and um, are good fun and the whole part the idea of a legacy game and some of them leave you with a copy of the game that's themed and designed by you basically yeah like, i think my, that's um that was made uh quite recently wasn't it it was yeah my betrayal at house on the hill legacy game once it's finished will have a bog standard betrayal at house on the hill game to play that's 
basically different from everyone else's copy because it's you know it's developed through our gameplay of the legacy game which will be quite an interesting take to do you know to actually look into once it's finished mm. so um that's an interesting one and um and another thing it's got me thinking about is actual game design to how well rate replayability works some of the games that f- I, I just sort of think sat here thinking like feel the same every time we play are different because they have enough different cards in them to be different. Good example is something like Thunderbirds or um, Thanos Rising, things like that. There's enough characters and enough difference as they come up. The gameplay is identical every time. But there's enough difference in what comes up that I don't think I've ever had two games that are identical. Yeah, this is very true. Yeah, and I think that's where um, it, it may it may not be spot on in the replayability aspect, but I think the variety section it starts playing into it there because as you say the game may well be the same every time but but as long as there's enough variety to that game to make it different or feel different at the very least then i i feel it's it's good in that category yeah seven moving on my number seven and i worded this one very particular a very particular way and that was number seven value and the reason I say I worded it a particular way is because price is always a factor when buying anything, obviously. But for me, price isn't just a price tag, or value isn't just a price tag. You have to consider a game's price relative to other games out there. For example, if a game costs $25, £25, and it is just a small deck of cards, that's not good value for money, no matter how good the game is. Whereas if another game costs $25, £25, and you get a deck of cards, 20 plastic miniatures, a stack of tokens, and a board. That's far better value. And that game may not be as good as the one that just comes with the deck of cards, but your value for money and your value for components is all in that second game. And as long as the game doesn't look garbage, I'd be probably more swayed at that point to go for the game with the better value. I may regret my decision a bit later, but... It's definitely something that plays a factor for me, you know, and I'm using $25 or £25 as an example. It becomes even worse if I start talking 70 plus. So yeah, looking what actually comes with a game and what the value or inside that box really is, that's a key, big key one for me. Number seven, value. I'm going to take a tangent off of that. I'm going to start looking at things that you might not necessarily see when you're picking up a game off the shelf, but you might get an idea of when you're at gaming groups or um, doing the research from online. So I'm going to start with, on this one, component quality. Because, again, it's a tangent off of your value for money and price sort of things that we've been saying is that if a game has good quality components, like good miniatures, you know, good artwork, stuff like that, all within the game design, as long as the quality's there, if the cardstock's nice you're happy to pay more and you're more likely to pick it up. If you know it's cheap and tacky, the game might be amazing, but you, mm. you're still going to be potentially put off. Uh, you know, I've seen games that component quality have made us buy it and then we've realised the game is terrible, looking at you, Kung Fu Panda. <laughs> um, you know, so it can make a difference before we've even started if the game looks good. Yeah, definitely. Six. I, I will continue on with that, with my number six, which is actually component quality as well. So, <sighs> while components with lesser quality don't really make a game worse per se, there's just something satisfying about playing with a game that has really high quality pieces. You know, that can, in some extreme ta- cases, take a game from being pretty meh 
to basically a collection keeper for me. You know, it will stay on my shelf just purely because, you know, Wacky Race is probably a really good example of that. The game is fun and all that. It's not rated super high for me, but it's kept purely because the miniatures that are in that game are absolutely gorgeous and they really do capture the whole Wacky Races theme. So, yeah, component quality is definitely something that has to be taken in because if a game comes with really rubbish, flimsy stuff, it's not going to appeal. It's very rarely going to see the table because I'd be too worried it'll get damaged. So, yeah, definitely something I consider as well. Number six, component quality. Moving on with my list, I've just started to notice that um, visuals versus game actually making a weird, weirdly difference in how I've ordered these for the minute. Um, so I'm going to finish with my actual game style things. I'm going to put a few things together here. Rule books, reviews and recommendations. Rule books being the key thing. You've probably heard me harp on about things before. And again, rule books aren't something again you'd know when picking up a box. I think the way I've looked at how we've decided this is what visually attracts me to a board game and what attracts me from what I hear and play from a board game. So having it open in front of you to look at seems to be stuff coming later in this list. Mm-hmm. But rule books is a big one. Um, I've bought some games that looked amazing and the rule books have nearly destroyed them. You know, the games can even actually be good. The Walking Dead one comes to mind. I actually enjoy playing that game, but it, even when I try to refresh myself on the rules, it can take so long to try and figure out everything that I'm supposed to be doing with the very unclear rule book. It, it It's become a meme with our groups, and it, it puts a lot of people off playing in everything full stop. Yeah. yeah. You know, so it's a big thing. And reviews. If a game gets a lot of bad reviews, even if you might like it, are you going to even bother looking at it if you think it's going to be bad so you know that's where recommendations can come in and vice versa a game might have amazing reviews and we might hate it Mm, yeah so we will be swayed by these things so they are key it's just whether you want to do the research beforehand but if you don't you can get stung going back to the price things earlier you know i love zombicide it was a huge risk because at the time i when i first got my first copy i wasn't massive into the board game circuit and reviews weren't something that particularly bothered me so forking out 80 pounds for a core game you know when you're early into a hobby is a real real big risk and i'm glad i took it because i enjoyed what you know i I loved that game but it was a definite challenge for me at the time yeah and that, that game as well in particular um really goes back to what i was saying earlier about value um there, there is a lot of value in that game with the, the sheer amount of miniatures that come in it it's got a good play, gameplay. It's got good. It's got a good game time as well. It's not particularly um, long or drawn out or anything like that. It's not too taxing. No, exactly. So yeah, completely agree with with you on that one, Ian. Without a doubt. Five. Um, I, I'm pretty sure you might have already mentioned this one as well, but my number five is actually attractive artwork as well. And now we are really getting into the nitty gritty of the because it's my top five. These are things that every game has to at least give me a small tick rather than a big tick, but it has to be ticked off in some way, shape or form. And attractive artwork is definitely one of them. I am not likely to pick up a box in a shop if I am not drawn to it by artwork. Um, And it's something we sing and dance about all the time on this podcast and in person as well, if you know us. So yeah, with so many amazing games on the market, you know, that you, you just can't possibly own them all, much as I would try. (laughs) Um, and when a game 
when when I'm in a game store, what is it? What is the first thing I'm drawn to when standing back, admiring this wall of cardboard plastic goodness? It's the box. It's the artwork on that box. That is what's going to catch my eye. So you know, I'd rather play a game with an eye-popping illustration than something with you know just barely eligible text and some screen captures. And you know, one that really does stick in my mind at the moment is you know I love Marvel Legendary. Marvel Legendary, the MCU edition, it's just some screen captures from, from the movie. And although that hasn't changed the game, I would happily play the normal version over it just because it's got better artwork. So, yeah, it could be an ultra modern graphic design, it could be an amazing comic style drawing, it could be a beautiful watercolour painting, or even, you know, go the complete opposite way an acid induced retro vibrant scheme of colour looking at you dinosaur island (laughs) but the key to it all is beautiful unique artwork always makes a game more delightful to bring to the table so that is why number five for me attractive artwork i'm going to follow up on that i had box design down but art is key anyway um and just to carry on with what you're saying we were chatting last night and i was looking over a pile of um, board games that I have sitting there. Downforce sticks out on the shelf at me, bright blue and white skyline with a big green driver on, just on the side strip of a box. You know, because some of these boxes on the shelf might not even be forward-facing because of how big the boxes are. Yeah. And then I look at Marvel Champions, and it is literally just a box-standard blue box with the word Marvel Champions on the bottom stretch. You know, it doesn't jump out at me. And then a little bit further down is Sinister Six with a nice um, contrast of colours with Sandman on the side. You know, some of these things are sticking out more than others. So artwork is a big thing. And at the end of the day, you think of regular retail, you eat with your eyes for normal food, stuff like that. If you have a tin of baked beans with a picture of beans on it, and then you have a tin of value brand in just a white tin, you're always going to look at the prettier colours and the the image of what you're looking at. And it's the same with with our board games, you know, and our card games even as well. Mm. You know, um, one of my praising things about pokemon magic and digimon is the artwork on the cards is absolutely stunning you know i can just sit and oogle at the cards rather than even playing the game for ages so and same i've done it with a lot of the board games if you can get good artwork to match a good game you've already got people interested if you're walking past the table in a board game cafe and you see a pretty box open with pretty cards in it and stuff like that and the beautiful artwork things like that you're already going to stop and pay note to what are they playing whereas if it's just i mean i've been caught out the opposite i love you know what both of us do we've said before love our model trains and things like that i bought the ticket to ride marklin edition because the box art was lovely with a model train sort of scene on it um and i thought all of the artwork in the game was going to be the same so the box art sold me on that particular version of ticket to ride over all of the others yeah and I was thoroughly disappointed when I opened the box and it was just stock images of all of the uh, Marklin um, yeah. rolling stock on each of the cards. So that is the perfect example there, to be honest, is they have they know how to sell a game like that. And by making the box art that attractive, it has made you purchase that game despite what the insides of that box would look like. So that just shows the power of box art. And it also takes me back to the power of reviews and recommendations. Game-wise, the game was good, and the extras that game brought were fun. But for what I was looking for, had I done any research on it, I could have found out that that wasn't actually what I was looking for, and I'd have been better off with the European version or the regular version. Yeah. Yeah. Four. 
Okay, so my number four now. Um, I be- again, I believe this is something that Ian has already mentioned uh, in his list, but this is actually very high on my list. As I mentioned, a lot of things that factor in my mind is the fact that we run our games clubs, and you know, the minimal time that I have for gaming every week is limited to when I am actually at those game clubs. So the key thing for me on that one is the playtime. I have to be able to set up the game, teach people the game, play the game, finish the game and pack down the game in the time that we run our uh, evening uh, game clubs. So, yeah, scheduling a game is, is hard at the best of times. So outside of game clubs doesn't really come into it for me. When When you buy a game, it has to fit into your life schedule. Your life schedule will be different from mine. Ours will be different from Paul's. All three of ours will be different from all of you listeners out there. So when you're buying a game, you really have to think, am I ever going to be able to get this to the table in the free time that I have throughout the week? And that will actually, there's another thing that will also factor into that, but that is my number three. So I will leave it here for this one and we'll pick it up again in a minute when I get to my number three. But number four for me is playtime. Well, I'm going to continue with my spree of um, visuals for a game. It's not the be or end all, but it, I've put it in its own section, is the minis for a game. You know, if a game needs minis, and not all do, and this includes, you know, like um, RPGs and wargaming and stuff, mini design and mini quality makes a huge difference um, in a game. I know I've already mentioned it once today, but I'm going to bring The Walking Dead back up into this because the campaign for that game when it was being advertised, the minis looked stunning. Once, the, you know, crowdfunding a game, you would take the chance on what you see visually in front of you. The ones they delivered were not nearly the quality that, that they advertised. And it became, yet again, another laughing stock. When you have a character whose um, arm holding a pistol is nearly as long as the entire miniature itself, you know, or a shotgun that curves into an S-shape. <laughs> you know, it takes one mini being really, really out of proportion can take away the immersion of a game straight away. Yes, it can. You know, it's like bad... Okay, wrong terminology. It's like weird paint jobs that people can do on things. You know, if you have, like, an army-based game and then you have a bright, like, neon green and pink soldier in the middle of it, it's going to stand out like a sore thumb. It might be amusing, and there's no reason people can't do that, but the immersion can go sometimes if you do silly things like that. Again, it doesn't take away from the gameplay and nothing against people who have done those sort of things. Mm. But that's something to bear in mind. But if a game sort of came like that, would you pick it up in the first place? Yeah. That's where I'm more where I'm going with this. You know, mm. and again, if you knew you've got something like a miniature in front of you and you're like, what is that supposed to be? Rather than, okay, that's an X-Wing or that's Spider-Man. Or, you know, if you can't make out what the mini is, then what's the point of the mini being there? What you can do with it. I mean, we've added minis to games just to make make it visually more appealing and more fun. So you know, it can show some of them might need them when they don't come with them. But yeah. would you have bought it if they had them in? Yeah, at a higher price point. Yep. So yeah, uh, minis are really nice. They're not always necessary, um, but it, sometimes they're they're not included. And and again, they're not necessary, but it's nice to have it. You know, we've talked in the past about upgrading your games, blinging your games if you so wish. <laughs> and it's it's visually appealing. That's that's always really nice. But when I'm buying a game, visually appealing is high <laughs> on the list for me, but it's not high enough to really sway me on a game. Um especially as generally when you start introducing things like minis the the price just skyrockets. Uh, understandably I'm not I'm not bitter about that you know I, I understand these things cost a lot of money to make 
So yeah, I, I do get that. Three. Number three is number of players. Ian touched on this a little bit earlier. As I said, for the most part, I play games at the respective clubs that we operate, and therefore I tend to be really, really lucky with the options I have. To me, with access to play games with either two, three, four, five, six players, etc., etc., there's always an abundance of people to play with. Um, however, not everyone has that luxury. If they don't attend regular game clubs or or game meets, that kind of stuff in your local area, you really do have to think about you know number of players. If you only ever play in a group of two, a game like um, Secret Hitler, for example, that is a minimum of three players, it's never gonna it's never gonna see the table, or it will see it so rarely that it will just be covered in dust. You know, we always talk about that elusive pile of shame. If it's and a lot of games that tend to sit in that for a lot of people tend to be because it requires a large number of people. Touched on legacy games earlier, for example, they don't require a large amount of people, but because of their nature of essentially being a one-shot deal, you're actually better to play it with a larger group of people. Yep. So, yeah, number of players is definitely something I take into it because I don't want to buy a game to sit on a shelf. I want to add to this as well. Um, something really key to this at the moment is the world situation. You know, there's been a boom in two-player or solo mode games because we're all locked away in our own homes at the moment. Yeah. I've got five games sitting either in shrink or on the shelf of shame because they require three or more players. You know, yeah. um, I've got two legacy games. As you said, they're waiting for groups of six. Because yep. I don't want to waste the opportunity of how much they cost and what they are. I got two Marvel games that are both three-player plus in Sinister Six and Wakanda Forever. And I had Stop the Train Turn Up from the Kickstarters over Christmas. None of which can be played because they all require three-plus players. So even me and my partner can't play them. Exactly. And it's it's a really strange time because... This one I had to really think about how I was going to word it because when I think about buying games, I think about normal life. And at that those times, I would be looking at games with four or more players just purely because whenever I play, it usually is four or more players. Yeah. However, got... buying a three or four or five player game now is ludicrous because I'm never going to get it to the table. So actually, the market has shifted the full 180 in the last year because, as you said, where we've all been stuck at home with a maximum of maybe two people uh, in a family, two-player games are your max. You know, and solo games have gone crazy because, you know, a, a lot of gamers, you know, their partners may not like playing games. So solo games has really taken over. You've got to keep your sanity up, and playing games is how it, how it happens for a lot of people. So, yeah, it's really changed in the last year, but I think once we go back to normality, my views on it will revert back to how it was, you know, generally games with four five or six players tend to be the ones that get my vote a bit you know they, they tend to get purchased a bit more um just mainly because my two player games very rarely see the table so yeah number three for me number of players back to my list this one is embarrassing to have to put so high up but i am such a sucker for ips <laughs> you know it, the one thing if i'm the way i was looking at this list is the core thing the first thing is the most important thing to me, what do I look at when I'm looking in a, in a shop? You know, what attracts me? IPs are going to be a big thing. I love being immersed in all the things I love. Pokemon, Marvel, Star Wars, Jurassic Park, all these sort of things. The moment you slap those on a box, 
you've already got me looking the game can be rubbish and i'll still be looking at it before i start weighing up all the other bits and pieces so it had to be high up there um the moment i see those logos you know like a rocket <laughs> <laughs> and the worst thing is he's telling the exact truth i've seen him in shops he literally run across the shop if he sees uh, an ip he likes on a board game yep or on anything, card games, tabletop, video games, yeah, yeah. t-shirts, you know. This is very true. <laughs> I can understand it being high on the list. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna slay that at all, to be honest. Two. Okay, this one bone of contention, I think, between me and Ian, uh, and a lot of times. But number two for me, and this is vitally important, which is why I made sure it was at number two. Well written and easy to learn rules. <laughs> if it is available to view rules online, I will always do it before purchasing a game. If they're not available online, as Ian said, I will go out there and try and do my research and see if anyone who already has the game uh, has done videos on it and, and that kind of stuff, just to see what those rules are like. I have been burned more times than I, I care to remember <laughs> on games that look absolute amazing they look the bee's knees they tick every other box and all I think to myself as well if they've ticked all these other boxes this well written easy to learn rules will also be ticked never ever feel that way so I yeah clear and concise and comprehensible rules are a must for me um, I am admittedly not the best at reading I'm terrible at reading rules it takes me a long time but if we're honest, most people do not engage in reading as much as we should once we leave school. So if you can't understand how to play or you have to check the rule book every 30 seconds, it's not going to be as fun or as immersive as it should be. So a little while ago, I don't think I've actually told anyone this, but a little while ago I came up with a trick that I've started to implement in recent months to gauge whether a game has well-designed rules. And that is actually to check out the list of components included in a game. Because a lot of the time you see a game with a component list as long as the credit reel on a big budget Hollywood movie <laughs> and it becomes incredibly overwhelming. Now, I, at this point, I would say I used to be guilty of seeing a list of components and thinking, oh my God, that game must be amazing, right? No. <laughs> um, all I can think about now, to be honest, is how difficult is it going to be to learn the rules for myself, let alone explain them to someone else? That in itself, can I even convince them to, to sit down and play the game if they haven't already run for the hills when I pour out four billion cubes, dice, tiles, minis, meeples, etc, etc onto the table? So I want a game that I actually have a chance to learn and play without losing the will to live after picking up the rule book that is meant to to be a gateway into the break from the norm and indulgence into the little thing known as fun you know so if a rule book is badly written i'm not going to enjoy it i'm not going to understand it because i don't understand it it will infuriate me and i'll get angry and i'll just want to quit I, I, I don't rage quit games but it is a massive massive pet peeve of mine if a game has a bad rule book they've spent all that money time and all of that drafting up these amazing games but haven't those rule books tested to see that they are readable to 
most people. So yeah, well-written and easy-to-learn rules are number two for me. I have to agree with that. Nothing will ever top the experience of spending an hour and a half to figure out the first turn of a game. No one should ever have to go through that pain, and rule books should be easy to understand and clear to pick up and play. Alright, so moving on to my second to last one. This is a bit of a cop-out because it, it follows on from IP, but game theme type is a big thing for me. You know, you don't have to have an IP on something to still have something of an interest you know so a superhero game for example is always going to pique my interest a game about trains or a game about dinosaurs you know these things are always going to pique my interest without necessarily having to have spider-man attached to it or you know a space themed game you know doesn't have to have star wars pinned to it so theme is often a big one annoyingly i hate to admit there's been plenty of games that haven't had a theme that i've liked where i've been introduced to the game by someone else and thoroughly loved it but I never would have picked it up off the shelf because it wasn't within my theme sort of range. And that's something that I've had to open myself up to and try to stop being quite so narrow-minded about. But it couldn't not be up there because it makes a big difference on whether I'll pick something up off the shelf or not. Yeah, I completely agree. One. It is genuinely my number one, and I I don't... I'm, I'm not upset to admit it, and that is a good appealing theme branding and plot and in this uh, you know ian separated them out a little bit more which i totally understand and respect i have actually put ip in this as well and there are reasons so you yeah usually the first thing that i personally look for is the theme any attached ip branding and the plot of the game i tend to be drawn to games that are light to midweight personally family or or group friendly etc and have a nice theme throughout the game for example again i'm going to bring it up again while we didn't rate wacky races from culminate or not all that high i was drawn to its its theme its nostalgic immersion into the crazy hanna-barbera cartoon world true enough the game is not the best or even close to it but i find myself taking it along to most game nights because people like the theme it draws people to the table when we've done gaming conventions for example with the, with the stand one of the key things that we find people come running over to look at are those miniatures because they know they know it you know kids know it adults know it it just draws people in so that's the ip side of it theme is no different we were playing spirit island the theme of that game is beautiful it really is it's not an ip based game but you've got this nice board layout which is sort of like an island obviously spirit island uh (laughs) but i i just like the theme of it where you are the island rejecting the settlers that are coming and i love that i absolutely love it so it's a really good theme it's not super immersive because obviously it's very fictional in that sense there's no realistic aspect to it but it's really good at immersing you in the game it makes you feel like yes i am this you know spirit of the island that says i don't want this human here i want to get rid of him and yeah you get into it so yeah good appealing theme branding and 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 plot of the game are vitally important you're never going to buy a game if the game plot looks pants if you're not interested in what the game is actually about why would you buy it that's why that's my number one and i'm going to go on to my number one it's a slight tangent on that it's game type now you've heard me harp on about this so many times 
if it's got the words co-op written on the board, you've already got my got me hooked. <laughs> and different sort of game styles and that will attract me. Like I do like my trading card games. I do like my deck builders. These things are always going to interest me over other types of games. Doesn't mean I won't pick up the other games. Doesn't mean I won't play them. But if you've already got me hooked on one thing, you know, it then gets me looking into a game more and quicker. So it had to be up there on the top of my list. You know, I, I, I mentioned the words co-op in every single time we talk about gaming, any type of gaming, full stop. Even video gaming. My favorite video gaming is with other people in a you know towards a goal yeah i just my social side of the whole gaming industry cooperative stuff favors better and i also find a player versus player unintentionally subconsciously try and figure out who's the biggest threat in a game i'll pick on them they'll pick on me and both of us never usually get anywhere in the game so i lose enjoyment factor out of that as well that's my own fault you know, I've got no one to blame but myself there, but I can't help myself half the time, <laughs> and it becomes frustrating. I can definitely see that, and yeah, I, I would say game type is is it should have been on my list somewhere because it is something I I consider without a doubt co-op is my favourite type of game as well. But even within that genre, there are just because it's co-op doesn't mean it's something I would be interested in. Um, but yeah, I, I do agree. I, I probably should have put that in my in my list somewhere. I, th- I reckon that's probably my number 11 if I had to pick. But yes, that is our list, guys. They're two very, very different lists. What are your guys' top top 10 things that you guys look for when you are purchasing a tabletop game? Doesn't have to be board games. We've sort of kept it fairly generic here. But yeah, if, if you play Warhammer, is there anything that really drew you to that game over something else? Is, you know, why do you go for a certain roleplay game? There's obviously something that has attracted you to that game in order to purchase it. So we would really love to know your opinions of what it is that draws you to a game as well. Let us know on any of our social media websites. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Just search for Meeple Minded Media. It's probably the easiest way to find us. But now is the time to bring back our good old friend. He's back for 2021. Um, so yeah, we're going to go over for some, hopefully some news. This type of, this time of year is always a bit slow, really, for gaming-related news. But yeah, hopefully Paul has got something for us over in the news shed. So uh, yeah, over to you, Paul. Yep, welcome back to the news shed. Well, we say shed, but it's had a bit of an upgrade over the holiday period. There is certainly more space in here to swing a duck. Well, we don't have a cat, do we? And you are the closest thing to hand. For those new to the podcast, that annoying noise you can hear is in fact Brian. Brian is indeed a rubber duck who was brought on board to keep me company in the shed when I was locked in. At times, they have a changed and the merciful overlords have been allowing me to leave as and when I want to, which has been fantastic. Well, it was until I contracted COVID. And have had to isolate for the past 10 days. Yep, I have it, but thankfully it's a mild case and I should be clear to emerge shortly. Brian has been taking very good care of me, although you can ditch the nurse's outfit, you know that. Yeah, well the skirt is pretty short, Brian. Well, at least put some bloody pants on. Thank you. Right, so think of Brian and I as the more attractive, comic relief half of the podcast. But that's not all. 
will be here each week in order to bring you a plethora of tabletop gaming-related news. We delve into the rabbit hole that is crowdfunding to bring you projects that catch our eye and maybe need your support to fund, as well as telling you about any gaming events that may or may not be happening, both local and those a little further from home. So without further ado, let's get the meeple-minded news underway. This year brings us anniversaries of two mainstays within the board gaming world, with the 15th anniversary of Ticket to Ride Europe and the 20th anniversary of Carcassonne. With both games standing the test of time, with multiple expansions and standalone sets being released along the way, it seemed only fitting that this year sees anniversary editions of both the base games make their way to some shelves near you. Ticket to Ride Europe, 15th anniversary edition, will be a limited collector's title set to be released sometime in spring. The updated version of the 2005 release will feature brand new artwork, as well as refreshed designs for the game's trains and station components. The new trains and stations will both come in tin boxes, alongside a fresh game board and up-to-date destination tickets for the train game. According to the game's designer, Alan Moon, the 15th anniversary edition will be larger than its original release. Ticket to Ride was created by Moon back in 2004, with the designer creating several other standalone titles in the series, such as Ticket to Ride Nordic Countries and the fast-playing spin-offs Ticket to Ride New York and London. Days of Wonder is yet to confirm a retail price for Ticket to Ride Europe 15th anniversary edition. Also, to commemorate 20 years of tile placement with Carcassonne, its 20th anniversary edition, a deluxe version of the classic board game, arrives also this spring. The upcoming anniversary edition is set to include all the tiles found in the base game and includes three game expansions. First of all is the highly popular Rivers expansion, which will include five brand new tiles, the Abbott expansion, together with an anniversary mini-expansion featuring 15 brand new tiles for the game. Each of the tiles found in the 20th anniversary edition of Carcassonne will include some detailed easter eggs designed for long-time fans of the series. Also, players will be able to customise the game's meeples using sticker costumes, transforming a once blank wooden meeple into a courageous knight or humble shepherd. Carcassonne 20th Anniversary Edition comes with a unique box cover and a newly designed inlay, plus a refreshed set of rules. Carcassonne 20th Anniversary Edition is set to be released on the 28th of May, although an English language version of the upcoming game is yet to be confirmed by Z-Man Games. A combination of extra free time during lockdown, fears over Brexit and nostalgia led to renewed interest in tabletop gaming and increased sales of board games last year, a recent report claimed. The global games and puzzles market reached a value of 11 billion in 2020, up from 10.4 billion value recorded in 2019, with 2021 set to see the industry cross the 12 billion pound mark, according to market research provider Euromonitor International. Tabletop games, including board games, card games and tabletop RPGs, are counted as part of the Games and Puzzles category, which also includes jigsaws and other traditional puzzles. The industry's growth in 2020, despite the impact of COVID-19, complemented a record 12 months for tabletop games on crowdfunding site Kickstarter. Tabletop game projects are believed to have raised $236.6 million last year, an increase of 33% on 2019. 
More campaigns were successful, overall too, with the 3,163 projects reaching their target, 87 of which raised over half a million dollars. Leading the way was Gloomhaven's sequel, Frosthaven, which in May broke the record for the highest funded board game to date on Kickstarter, raising nearly 13 million from over 83,000 backers. The next story is one close to my heart, Game in Lab is a game research support program run by Asmodee Research and the Innovation Factory, researching topics surrounding gaming and its impacts. Today it's confirmed that findings of a clinical study on the application of board games to Alzheimer's treatment. Over the past year, board games have enabled us all to play together in the comfort and tranquility of our homes, providing some relief, adventure and pleasure. However, we are convinced that playing games harbours greater potential and can play a true educational and even clinical role in our society, said Stefan Carvel, CEO of Asmodee. Via Asmodee Research, we intend to demonstrate the tremendous impact playing games have on our brains and are delighted to support additional projects which can identify research and prove new and important ways that games can help society. The study itself found that adapted board games can improve the well-being of Alzheimer's patients, helping better understand how board games can be used to benefit society. In its summary, it confirmed the main findings as follows. Board games may be a valuable tool to improve an Alzheimer's patient's quality of life when they fit with the player's interest. Board games can be used as cognitive and behavioural stimulation with positive effects for Alzheimer's patients if done regularly and small tweaks to existing games, like printing out sheets with larger fonts, or subbing in-game pieces that might be more ergonomically accessible, can greatly improve Alzheimer's patients' enjoyment, whilst also increasing cognitive stimulation. Whilst it made clear that this was not a treatment for Alzheimer's, it, it did represent helpful stimulation for patients that can improve quality of life, but adaptations would be needed and it would be best served if suited the interests of the patient. The results are positive and conducive to further research. Alzheimer's disease is a degenerative disease of of the brain which leads to dementia, decreasing memory and judgment, primarily but not necessarily found in older people. With no cure presently, the question is often asked how to improve the quality of life for Alzheimer's sufferers despite the disease. And so research such as this is important in finding ways to support this. Right, and we're heading on to crowdfunding now, and these three are in fact projects on Kickstarter at the moment. Our first game is Radlands. It's a two-player game, taking about 20 to 40 minutes, has an age rating of 14+, and is from Roxley Games, famous for Brass, Santorini, and Dice Throne. The project ends on Friday, February the 12th. Radlands is an intense dueling card game created by former Magic of the Gathering external developer Daniel Beechnik and about identifying fiercely powerful card synergies. Act as the leader of your post-apocalyptic group of survivors in a tooth-and-nail fight to protect your three camps from a vicious rival tribe. If all of them are destroyed, you lose the game. The main resource in the game is water, You'll spend it to play people and events and to use the abilities of cards you already have on the table. People protect your camps and provide useful abilities, while events are powerful effects that take time to pay off. Both players draw cards from the same deck. All cards can either be played to the table or discarded for quick junk effects. 
To win, you will need to manage your cards and water wisely. It is extremely elegant from both a component and game design perspective, consisting of a deck of text, minimal cards and a short rulebook. But do not let the game's level of elegance fool you, as Radlands provides one of the highest strategic depth-to-complexity ratios Team Roxley has ever experienced. With only one pledge level set at roughly £30, certainly looks intriguing. Next up is Three Peer. It's for 1-6 to six players, taking 15-60 to 60 minutes to play, has an age rating of 6+, and is from a new board game studio called Fam Fun. 3PR explores the realm of our mind, colour and shape to create a simple, stimulating puzzle card game that transcends both age and languages. You can learn to play the game within minutes, but be engrossed for hours. Before starting the game, players must set a game grid by randomly picking four cards from the deck and form them into a square with the different colours and shapes facing upward. Inspired by international chess, each player is given a total of three minutes for the entire game. Players get three cards at the start and take turns to form a row of at least three matching shapes or colours by stacking one card from their hand onto the game grid. Players who do not have any stackable card will have to end their turn by drawing. Game ends for the player when their clock runs out while others continue to finish the game with their remaining time. When the time runs out for everyone, the player with the highest score wins. There are a variety of starting game grids to choose from, and many other ways to play 3PR. There are multiple pledge levels available with a DIY print and play set at just £7, and starting for a physical set at just 14 And the third game today is Cryptid Cafe. It's for 1-4 to four players, takes about 45 minutes and the age rating of 13 plus and it's from Squatchy Games and this one's due to finish on Thursday of February the 25th. You are a lead server at the Cryptid Cafe, a Sasquatch owned restaurant packed with legendary creatures from all over the world. Gather food, fill orders, earn the most tips and be crowned, dare we say, the most legendary server. Strategically dispatch your team of Sasquatch servers to the different food stations gathering the much-needed items to complete your customers' orders. As you serve the customers, they will give you tips based on their satisfaction level. However, with each passing round, the cryptids get more and more frustrated waiting for their food. will begin to leave smaller tips. Eventually, they'll leave the restaurant if they are not served fast enough. Sounds simple, right? Not so fast, because you're not the only lead surfer working tonight. You'll be competing with other players who are trying to serve their customers as well. Spaces are limited, food stations are breaking, the orders are piling up, customers are getting angry. It may be wise to share some of your tips with the chef so you can get the food you need first. If all goes well, at the end of the night, you'll be the player crowned the most legendary server. With a base retail pledge setting you back just £22, but just £30 sees you upgrade to the deluxe version. On to events now. And Renegade Game Studios has their Renegade Con online during the weekend of the February 12th to the 14th. You head on over to renegadegamesstudios.com for all the information on a full weekend of panels, industry interviews, workshops, tournaments, live plays and demos of both games and RPGs, as well as access to a lot of Renegade games via Tabletopia. So head on over to the website to grab your free tickets, seats at some of the tables, and access to the dedicated Discord server for the event.
UKGE, originally slated for the weekend of the 4th to the 6th of June, has given a recent announcement and has pushed the date back eight weeks to the weekend of the 31st of July until the 1st of August in a hope to host a physical show. The nature of the event and safety precautions that will be in place have yet to be formally decided. UKGE admits it cannot decide what path it will take until the event date draws nearer. Consequently, public purchasing of tickets won't open until after Easter. Those who are elected to have their 2020 ticket roll over have one of two options. Pay the difference between the more expensive socially distanced ticket or continue to roll that purchase forward into 2022. The Expo said it has begun reaching out to exhibitors with information and updates and will continue to maintain those conversations as plans for UKGE 2021 progress. Gen Con, Essenspiel and Pax Unplug are all hoping to host some form of physical events in 2021, but with continuing COVID issues still apparent, all information is certainly subject to change. Our local groups are always around during the week via Discord and Zoom, playing games via Tabletopia, Tabletop Simulator and Board Game Arena. Crawley Gaming Community meet up on a Monday evening, so head on over to their Facebook page and or their Discord server for up-to-date information. Lewis Board Game Group and Trinity Gaming Cafe are online on Thursdays. They usually chat via Zoom, so pop on over to their Facebook page for links. Worthing Board Gamers too meet on a Thursday evening, with all their information, as I said, over on their Facebook page. Well, with that, it brings us to the end of this week's escapades from the tabletop gaming world, and indeed, from the first week as meeple-minded. We shall be back next week for more news, crowdfunding campaigns, and hopefully some events. Look after yourself, meeples, stay safe, and keep those dice rolling. And it's a goodbye from him. And indeed, a goodbye from me. Until next week, goodbye. Thanks for that, Paul, and thanks for you guys joining us once again for our very first proper full-length episode of 2021. How do you think it went this time, Ian? Yeah, it's nice to be back. Um, it was a good subject to bring us warmers back into as well. I think it's quite a long one for us. Um, but yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed that. And it gives you guys a window into how we look at the gaming industry as a whole for what, what piques our interests. Yeah, definitely. And I think Ian actually raised a really good point earlier on in the episode, which was, you know, what we look for when it comes to a crowdfunding thing. So if you guys want to know what we actually look for when we're browsing through Kickstarter or GameFound and all that kind of stuff, let us know, because I reckon that will be an interesting discussion as well. Um, it's not something we're going to do like next week, for example, but if you guys <laughs> want to hear it, we'll definitely add it to the list. Um for, for next do. week's podcast on game crowdfunding <laughs> <laughs> no no we're not going to do that we actually already have next week's planned out yep. so uh oh sorry we'll just tell you what it's going to be next week's episode we are actually going to be doing a game highlight on another ip game <laughs> yep. we do love our ips we're a real sucker for ips but yeah we're going to be talking about toy story Obstacles and Adventures, the deck building game, and that really is a tongue twister. And probably none of you have heard of it. I'm, I'm going to guess not particularly well known, but it's we not. enjoyed it. It comes from a very big game manufacturer, which is what surprises me. A lot of people don't know about it. So yeah, we will be talking about that next week. So we look forward to you joining us next week. Is there anything you want to add this time, Ian? Uh, no, I think that's about it for this week. Um, hope everyone stays well and stays safe. 
and look forward to doing the next one. Indeedy, indeedy. Thank you once again for joining us for our first full-length episode of 2021. It's been a pleasure. We will see you next week. Thank you very much once again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.